0: Welcome to IS Off the Page. I'm your host, Morgan Kaplan, and I'm the executive editor of International Security, a quarterly journal edited and sponsored by the Belfer Center at Harvard Kennedy School and published by the MIT Press. In today's episode of IS Off the Page, we'll be talking about Ketian Zhang's summer 2019 international security article, Cautious Bully, Reputation, Resolve, and Beijing's Use of Coercion in the South China Sea. To help us with this discussion, we have the author, Dr. Ketian Zhang with us, as well as guests retired Admiral Scott Swift, who is a former commander of U.S. Pacific Fleet, and Suzanne Thornton, who is a retired senior U.S. diplomat with almost 30 years of experience with the U.S. State Department in Eurasia and East Asia. She's also currently a senior fellow and research scholar at the Yale University Politi China Center and a non-resident fellow at the Brookings Institution. Ketian Zhang is an assistant professor of international security in the Schar School of Policy and Government at George Mason University. Thank you, Ketian, for coming on the show today. Um, why don't you start off by telling, telling everybody a little bit about your article, Cautious Bully, Reputation, Resolve, and Beijing's Use of Coercion in the South China Sea.
1: Great. Um, Thank you, Morgan, uh, for having me here. And I'm very excited to talk about uh, my um, article. So the main question that I'm asking uh, in uh, this article is uh, when, why, and how does China coerce other states in uh, the South China Sea? So I started this article uh, with sort of um, two intentions in mind. And the first one is that there has been a lot of discussions in both the academic and the policy world about To what extent is China becoming more assertive or not? And the second sort of intention uh, or puzzle that I have in mind when starting this article is that um, China engaged in military coercion in the 1990s, but actually it started to use uh, non-military coercion more uh, beginning around 2007. So with these two sort of puzzles um, and uh, uh, questions in mind, my main findings are such that uh, China uses coercion to establish a reputation for resolve. And secondly, China refrains from using coercion when the economic cost of coercing the target state becomes too high. And the third point is that uh, China tends to use non militarized coercion more when it perceives that the typical cost of using military coercion becomes high.
0: So... What do we mean by non-militarized coercion? Walk us through a little bit of what the different ways that China is able to use coercion in the South China Sea.
1: Um, So this is one thing that makes this article more interesting in the sense that when we think about the word or the term coercion, sometimes military coercion is what comes into mind. But in fact, states, especially rising powers like China, have been using um, all kinds of coercive tools, including non naturalized tools. So the ones that I'm uh, conceptualizing and finding in this article uh, is that first China uses uh, diplomatic sanctions, so for example, counseling um, uh, high level exchanges uh, between, say, China and the Turkey state, or even um, uh, a downgrading and, uh, the diplomatic uh, relationship. And the second kind of non-militarized tool China has been using is economic sanctions. So in uh, the context of uh, Southeast Asia, it could be that uh, withdrawing aid or um, uh, threatening certain oil and gas drilling companies in the South China Sea. And the third kind of um, non-militarized tool, uh, which sort of... uh, stands in between the strictly non-military tools such as diplomatic or economic sanctions and the militarized coercive actions is what I call gray zone coercion. So that is the use of uh, civilian law enforcement organizations such as uh, the, the Coast Guard or the maritime surveillance agencies to inflict physical damage on uh, the target state so it stays below the threshold of the use of the military but at the same time it, in, it inflicts physical damage on the target state nonetheless
0: that's super interesting in, in, do these you know kind of gray zone actors where do they get their orders from you know are they getting their orders from the the PLA or the PLA navy or you know who di- who directs them exactly and like how does that affect kind of the extent to which we can see it as being you know a coercive action that's being taken directly from the top.
1: That's a good question. So so one thing that I would like to clarify is that um, the these sorts of gray zone coercive actors um, they' they don't take command from the PLA or the Navy because they're the civilian aspect of um, the Chinese bureaucracy or agency. Um, so they all belong into the Chinese State Oceanic uh, administration uh, up until 2018. Um, after which uh, there is a reform within the Chinese state that um, makes the uh, state oceanic administration, part of a broader uh, department of um, uh, natural resources. But nonetheless, they're still the civilian wing of uh, the Chinese bureaucracy. And it's my understanding that they take orders um, uh, from, of course, the state oceanic administration, but the state oceanic administration also take orders from sort of more so the central government. So there is a pretty systematic uh, chain of command, uh, clearly written uh, rules and regulations about how they should act in certain circumstances, and in particular when it comes to uh, uh, facing um, off with um, target states such as Vietnam or the Philippines, all of those actions and what kind of actions they should be taking will all have to be reported to uh, up to the central level. So it's highly centralized, but more so in the civilian uh, side of things.
0: Right. And so you've been looking at the pattern of China's use of coercion in the South China Sea over a number of years. And and it seems like you've found that there's there's quite a bit of variation in terms of the type of coercion they use. Can you tell us a little bit about what you found, what you discovered in terms of these patterns.
1: This is, I think, another thing that might be in- interesting, even in a descriptive sense um, to uh, 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 people um, sort of um, outside of the study of Chinese foreign policy, in the sense that uh, it's not the case that China has only become more assertive since around 2010. Um, I'm looking at um, the time frame from 1990 all the way to around 2015 or 16. So China actually engaged in military coercion quite a bit it almost in the South China Sea in the 1990s, especially the mid-1990s. And in between 2000 and 2006, China refrained from coercion despite some of the actions taken by other uh, Southeast Asian countries that China perceived as threatening. And um, starting from 2007, China began to use coercion again, but none of these cases of post-2007 Chinese coercive actions were actually militarized. So we see um, sort of a cyclical pattern of Chinese use of coercion, but at the same time, the tools that China uh, prefer to use uh, has become or have become more non militarized in the more recent years.
0: So what explains this variation?
1: Um, So I would argue that, um, so my theory is uh, what I would term a cost balancing theory, uh, in the sense that China balances between the the, the need to establish a reputation for resolve and the economic cost of using coercion. So in the 1990s, um, the the need to establish resolve was pretty high for China, especially because there were more actions. taken by other South Chinese, uh, Southeast Asian countries that China viewed as threatening. But also uh, we've uh, seen more media uh, reports about such actions, which increased uh, China's pressure to establish resolve because it believes that everybody else is watching Chinese behavior. And if it doesn't do anything, um, uh, other states might view uh, that China is giving a green light uh, to allow them to do uh, further actions in the South China Sea. So, at the same time, the economic cost for China to coerce uh, has been pretty low. And moreover, because of um, the United States uh, leaving the Supi Bay in the Philippines in early 1991 to 1992, China believed that there is a duplical vacuum in Southeast Asia, which explains the, 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 um, the, the frequency at, in which China used military coercion in this particular period. But in between 2000 and 2006, uh, the need to establish resolve was lower and also because of the uh, fewer media reports on the South China Sea at the international level. But at the same time, China was uh, in need of Southeast Asia because it was uh, uh, interested in establishing free trade uh, zones, economic zones with Southeast Asian countries. And there was no exit options for China. So in this particular period, China refrained from coercion. And beginning 2007, China began to coerce again more, uh, also because of the increased media exposure on the issue of the South China Sea. But at the same time, um, because the United States, um, so to speak, returned to uh, 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 East Asia uh, since around the early 2000s, the duplical pressure for China to use military coercion was pretty high. So China used coercion, but made a Goldilocks choice and kept it at the non-military level.
0: Terrific. Well and I only have one more question for you. Sure. Are you ready?
1: Um, No idea, (laughs) but I like challenges, so please go ahead.
0: Are you ready to go off the page? Now we'd like to bring in Scott Swift, a retired admiral with nearly 40 years of experience in the United States Navy and previously the commander of U.S. Pacific Fleet. Admiral Swift, welcome and thank you for joining us at Off the Page. Uh, Thanks very much for the uh, opportunity to join you. It's a pleasure to have you. So, Admiral Swift, given your experience as commander of Pacific Fleet and your decades of experience in the Indo-Pacific do you agree with the assertion that China can be classified as a cautious bully when it comes to responding to incidents that China perceives as threatening in the South China Sea?
2: Yeah, well, well first, I, I would uh, uh, come, <clears throat> come in, uh, get him for the, for the article. I mean, I, I think it's extraordinary, and I've, I've already recommended it to uh, uh, many of the folks uh, that I know. I, talking about the two spe- specific words, cautious bully. Um, I would expand that discussion to say that it is true that that China is cautious and I think it's reflected in the article in uh, the, the approach that China took in the run-up to the Scarborough Shoal uh, incident. Um, so I, I, I was you, you could characterize that as being uh, cautious, but I would suggest that it's more reflective of how thoughtful uh, China is. It's also, Reflective of the fact that I do think that uh, China has a grand strategy. They think about their issues from a strategic perspective, um, and unless a competitor uh, pursues that same approach, it's it's difficult uh, to compete. With specific to the to the term uh, "bully," bully in my mind is is someone who's out looking for a fight. I don't see that in China's uh, uh, actions, and I and I don't see it. In how they characterize their actions, what I see is the implementation of a strategy, and uh, where China uses coercion, um, they've done the calculus uh, from
0: a sense of furthering uh, their their uh, strategic objectives. You know, you'd mentioned that this is part of a broader grand strategy on the part of the Chinese and. And as ketian has shown in our article, right, these are well thought out uh, strategies in terms of how to use coercion. The question is, though, is has China been successful in your view um, in using these different nuanced approaches to establish a reputation for resolve in the South China Sea? You know, we know this may be their intention. This may be the result of their calculation, but but are they actually establishing that reputation from, you know, from the perspective of the American military and uh, other countries in the region? I would counsel caution in uh, in defining uh,
2: success, and and that's difficult because of the lack of transparency. Exactly what are China's goals? So without understanding what those goals are, we we tend to come to to conclusions at, uh, through assumptions as to whoever the observer may be uh, thinks those goals may be, and then they measure success against that. Um, but in direct answer to your question, I think in the near term, uh, China is largely pleased with the progress that they've made. Uh, I have definitely seen a shift in the region with uh, allies, partners, friends, and others as to uh, their confidence level in uh, regaining the stability. I think there's a common view that, that uh uh, things are are unstable uh, uh, in uh, in the region, and I don't think they're trending towards stability in in the way that those in the region would like to see stability. And I think China's has uh, uh, done a job that I'm sure they feel is admirable, and and taking
0: advantage of that instability. Kedian, you wanted to jump in on this
1: to the question about sort of um, how successful China is um, and how to actually define success. And I absolutely agree with uh, the Admiral that it's really difficult to actually correctly measure what success is uh, in terms of uh, Chinese coercion. Um, Probably also, from my perspective, uh, due to several reasons. And the first one is I think it actually, uh, how successful Chinese coercion is or will be in the future actually depends on US actions in the region. it really is a factor of how much the United States is willing to commit to defending, um, you know, freedom of navigation in the Asia-Pacific region, as well as uh, U.S. Uh, ally or alliance commitment to especially the Southeast Asian countries. And the other factor, I think it's also internal to sort of um, the, the, the the countries in Southeast Asia. For example, the um, administration change from the, um, Uh, into the Duterte administration, which is not necessarily a function of Chinese coercion, but rather pretty much internal to uh, the Philippine uh, domestic politics. And the third point is that I think there's also a trade-off in terms of Chinese coercion. So it could be in the short term uh, successful in uh, sort of um, scaring away some of the, the actors in Southeast Asia into uh, behaving according to what China would want them to be. But at the sa- same time, it probably would generate a long-term uh, backlash from all of the, the other actors in uh, the Asia Pacific region against China. So I guess there's always a short-term versus long-term trade-off in terms of using coercion as well.
2: Kenyon's comments about near-term success, I think, is spot on. This is not a near-term competition, you know, and uh, unfortunately, I, I think from the U.S. perspective, too oftentimes we look at it that way. Uh, China has a much larger view. I, I think that the South China Sea is interesting, but I don't find it fascinating because I think the competition is being played out on a much bigger scale. Ketney mentioned that the, the uh, freedom of navigation. In a maritime context, which is how it's characterized 95% of the time. But I would suggest what makes allies, partners, and friends, others in the region uncomfortable is they recognize the strategic significance of the competition. And that is that the freedom to navigate is not being impeded just in the military and not just in the maritime domain. Freedom of navigation is being impeded in the diplomatic domain, the information domain, yes, the military domain, uh, but the e- economic uh, domain, the, f- the uh, financial domain, the intelligence domain, and the legal domain, and there are others. China has a whole of government approach. And, and unfortunately, from the U.S. perspective, I think we're too focused on the military response, which i don't think is very effective and and quite frankly it increases risk uh, because a military uh, miscalculation is very difficult to walk back as opposed to a diplomatic miscalculation or a financial or illegal miscalculation
0: right so that brings up a great point which is what can you know actors like the united states do to counter china's use of both military and non military uh, coercion in the South China Sea, from the perspective of, of those wanting to push back on on Chinese encroachment into the established uh, order.
2: Well, I, you know, I'd be interested in in uh, uh, Ketney's response to, uh, uh, to to this this perspective. And um, first of all, I, I I do think that we need a whole government approach. Uh, I think that China does have a grand strategy, and there's beyond the scope of of this discussion uh is one of exactly what grand strategy is but um i think china has a grand strategy and i, I think it's reflective in the broad global approach that they're taking and and I, I think without a grand strategy uh any country has a very difficult uh time uh competing uh, in that measure there's a there's a dialogue once again about freedom of navigation that i use uh to uh, to explain that but with that grand strategy it allows uh, China to have not only a whole of government approach, but from that whole of government approach, a whole of nation approach. I mean, that the Chinese people are energized and, and committed uh, to the goals of uh, the Chinese government. You know, that's not the case uh, here in the United States. And I, I think it's because we haven't thought sufficiently about the problem strategically. And once you do that, you realize that the scope is much larger than just the South China Sea, that there are some some issues in the South China Sea that I think goes to the legitimacy of, of the uh, Xi Jinping uh, government, uh, which is why I think we need to be very careful about uh, what approach uh, that we take there. And I think as Ketnyan points out in our article, there were some opportunities lost that because we didn't understand uh, fully the strategic competition at the time, we missed opportunities to act decisively Uh, in the early stages of the Scarborough Shoal incident um, that would have been uh, more supportive of maintaining stability in the region and would not have been destabilizing. And the last thing I'll say is that I think it's very important to take a more multilateral approach to these challenges. It's telling that China prefers a a unilateral or bilateral approach in resolving the differences that they have, it it is not from a broad regional perspective. It's with with individual countries. So I think the the approach of with, by, and through other countries is is an approach that we should more fully embrace and be less declarative and demanding of, of what we expect of others and more of listening and soliciting Uh, what others are thinking.
1: I I think I absolutely agree with Admiral Swift that in the sense that it's very important to have a grand strategy, even though it's beyond this article, but it actually is what's guiding um, um, sort of Chinese foreign policy in the sense that China uh, is using sort of a comprehensive uh, uh, set of tools in achieving its goals. It actually has a pretty clear interest hierarchy in terms of what's most important and what is less important. And as much as I would want to say that the South China is important to China is actually not the most important uh, sort of uh, a foreign policy issue to China. So I think that is why you see more of a Chinese use of non-militarized tools, as opposed to sort of militarized coercive action because the stakes are just not as high as, say, uh, Taiwan.
2: My response to those that say, hey, based on the disunity that's w- within our government right now, it, it, it's a task impossible to, to generate uh, a grand strategy. Um, and my response to that is the processes are more important than the products. So the, the competition is not a bad thing. You know, competition, as long as you understand what the rules are, makes everyone better. Uh, this this kind of win win approach that, uh, uh, that 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 China advocates for. On, uh, uh, on a regular basis. So we have much more in common than we do in competition with China. And understandably, we do focus on those friction points that generate the competition. The competition is not about the South China Sea. It's not about reclaimed islands. It's not about environmental issues. Uh, I don't think it's about personal information. Uh, that I mean, all these are challenges. I acknowledge that. But at the highest level, it is about this this rules-based order, and to be precise, it's it's about the rules that govern the rules-based order. Specifically, how those rules are changed. What China is doing is, uh, it's. I'm less concerned about them changing the international order. I'm more concerned about the methodology that they're changing the rules, which is the, the focus on uh, uh, the the article that is. Uh, 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 Kadian's article uh, that she wrote, where they're using force and coercion across all the domains of government, um, where they feel they don't have the luxury of time to change the rules, as opposed as opposed to discourse and dialogue. That's why China does not uh, is, is circumspect about engaging in organizations like ASEAN. Because they want a unilateral or bilateral approach, where all their power can be brought uh, to to change the use, the the, the rules, using that force and, and uh, coercion piece. So, I, I again, in summary, I would say the process is more important than the product.
0: Right. So, I mean, this may be a good place, you know, to think about. You know, a kind of final question in terms of what does the future look like uh, in terms of competition in the South China Sea and, and, and more broadly?
2: A couple of points I would make. One is I do think that they are more cautious because they don't want that they, – they're they're caught in a conundrum here. They want to be – they need they need to be more cautious because they don't want to lose the, the progress that they've made, the successes that they've made, you know, back to your uh, original uh, point. You know, as I talk to uh, allies, partners, and friends in, in the region, um, they're much more circumspect about their confidence in their relationships with the U.S. and and where does the U.S. stand specifically with whatever their issues may be? I think China would view that as a, as a success. A part of China's strategy is to separate. United States from, from its traditional and, and potentially new uh, allies, uh, partners, and, and friends. So ch- China does not want to have a setback to the progress that they've made. So there's cautious there. But I do think that they recognize that the, the clock is ticking. Uh, they, they have huge internal issues uh, that are not going to get simpler with the passage of time. The Uyghur issue, uh, their economic issues, I, I, I'm not sure that their economic model can survive uh, full contact with the, the global economic model. Um, if you look at the environmental issues, uh, um, land use issues, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Um, I'm not sure that uh, the self-assessment of China is they have the luxury of time, which which is that
0: balancing factor of how cautious uh, can they really be? Well, thank you so much, Admiral Swift. One uh, final question that we like to end on in the show is, you know, given all your experience in your career, what advice could you give uh, young academics, young policymakers, young analysts in their career? So I, w-
2: I would say it's important to write and whatever and and to speak. I think you should spend 10% of your time writing and speaking and ni- and 90% of your time listening. When I was a, a commander in the Navy, I oftentimes would ask, what problem are we trying to fix? And if it's because something is broken, let's understand what's broken first
0: fully right. before we start talking about the solutions. Admiral Swift, thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you for the time. And, and Kenyon. And thank you
2: for the, the wonderful article.
1: Thank you so much, Admiral
0: Joining us now is Suzanne Thornton, who is a senior fellow and research scholar at the Yale University Paul Tsai China Center and a non-resident fellow at the Brookings Institution. She previously served as Acting Assistant Secretary for East Asian and Pacific Affairs at the Department of State. Ms. Thornton, welcome to the show. We might as well dive right in and ask, how do you perceive Chinese behavior in the South China Sea?
3: Yeah, well, thanks, Maureen. It's great to be with you today and great to have a chance to chat with Katia about this really fascinating topic. Um, I guess I would say that, in general, China's recent behavior in the South China Sea has been troubling to me as a diplomat. Um, I think China's foray into the South China Sea over the last may- basically 10 years um, has really reflected, in some sense, this sort of new aggression that we see in China's foreign policy. It represents, to some extent, I think, an expansion of what China calls its core interests. Uh, Also, of course, very troubling that uh, it sort of seems to represent an assertion of new kind of China-centric rules, as opposed to strict adherence to international rules and unclose with the ITLOS Tribunal. And I mean, frankly, I also see that China has uh, possibly overstepped in alienating a lot of the countries on its periphery and its neighborhood, and it may turn out to be a strategic blunder if China looks back on it in a few years. And one question I wanted to sort of raise uh, and surface in this conversation with respect to the South China Sea is how much does International law, international instruments, China's ratification and membership in UNCLOSE, and the various deadlines associated with UN activity, how much has that affected China's behavior?
0: And it, and it reminds me a bit also in your article, Ketian, that the fact that the Chinese have been focusing specifically on non military forms of coercion in the South China Sea, you know, I wonder to what extent that is a way for the Chinese. Um, to assert themselves in the region without necessarily raising huge red flags from an international law perspective. I mean, and this is a question I guess to both of you, but you know, are are those two things related? The fact that the Chinese may be uh, employing kind of more gray zone, more hybrid type operations, as not specifically the PLA or the PLA Navy doing things in the South China Sea because they're trying to kind of. Have some sort of plausible deniability about uh, violating certain international laws and norms?
3: Yeah, well, I think uh, on the basic question about military coercion versus non military uh, coercion, you know, China in the 90s uh, had fewer tools to use in the non military toolbox. And as of 2019, China has a lot of leverage in other areas. And certainly China is looking to avoid escalation, Uh, one of the sort of things I think we can count on part of the Chinese government is they're always looking to stabilize and calm down a situation, even if they're the ones that are, you know, pursuing the sort of, uh, you know, coercive behavior. And uh, so they don't really want to escalate the situation. They don't really want to have to contend with a situation that they can't control. And of course, military coercion is uh, among those instruments that is least subject to the ability to control it once you unleash it. So I think that goes a long way toward explaining uh, why China doesn't turn as much to, um, you know, military uh, instruments Um, as far as de-escalatory. I mean, I think it's not really de-escalatory to pursue this kind of coercion, but what what the pattern is that I've seen, you know, China is quite deliberate. And so I think that's an interesting part of your article, you know, where you get at sort of the decision-making process in China behind when to use coercion. I mean, the cases that I've seen are all, I mean, China is quite deliberate about the way it goes about this. It first warns... um, you know, it might do uh, one small thing as a as a plausibly deniable but symbolic, you know, step to show whichever country is the target of this activity that they better, um, you know, take China's warning seriously. And then, you know, they, they kind of go from there if the country does not take the warning seriously. And and it, so it seems to be quite a deliberate and centralized process, which you brought out in the article. Um, but I think, you know, the question of why does it use which tools, um, s- to some extent, that can be answered by just the point that they, these tools now have been developed by China. I mean, the, the very good example of a tool that's been developed that reflects both China's desire to have plausible deniability um, you know, over what it's doing, respect international law, et cetera, et cetera, is the development of these maritime militia forces that are you know, fishing boats, but that have very serious kinds of um, you know, offensive and defensive sort of weapons deployed on them. To be used, you know, in conjunction with Coast Guard forces or PLA Navy forces to enforce um, China's claims or other things in the in the South China Sea and elsewhere.
0: So, what about the flip side of the coin now, right? What about what about the United States? How is it dealing with these very diverse types of Chinese actions in the South China Sea that you know seem to range everything from from clear military coercion to, to, to non-military coercion to, to even kind of you know, propaganda, normative acts. Do you see that the, the United States over the years has recognized these trends that are emerging in the South China Sea and has been catching up or appropriately responding to it in ways that are actually effective?
3: I mean, I think that definitely the U.S. has been responding to it. Uh, It's a very complicated set of events that have transpired. And I mean, looking at the historical record is definitely important for trying to figure out, you know, exactly what the U.S. has been doing and whether or not it's been effective. But I think, you know, when this issue came up in a very dramatic way in 2010, when uh, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton was at the ASEAN Regional Forum in Hanoi, and she said that basically U.S. interests in this area um, are important, and it's basically freedom of navigation, access to these uh, waters is very important for uh, both, you know, commerce and U.S. military activity. Um, And also that the U.S. has a a very big interest in the peaceful resolution of disputes in this area because, of course, we have a number of treaty allies in the area and um, we uh, want to make sure that their interests are protected, but that also, you know, we don't get drawn into uh, military conflagration, um, you know, because of... Contested claims in these areas and our and our um, defense obligations with our treaty allies. So I think uh, that gives the U.S. a very huge stake, actually, in how you know China's coercive measures vis-a-vis other claimants in this region are are carried out, and what kinds of tools the Chinese are using, what they're pursuing, and you know certainly up to up to now, the U.S. has. Mainly use diplomatic tools, you know, uh, both private and public statements. uh, Certainly, um, you know, trying to get the claimants to effectively work together to pursue their interests. And then, of course, our freedom of navigation operations, which is mainly there as a symbol that says we're going to maintain access to this region. Another interesting incident in that regard was the Chinese announcement of the air defense identification zone over the East China Sea features um, which the u.s subsequently you know told China it was not going to recognize and then demonstrated to that effect by flying through it so um, those are the kinds of things the US has been doing um, you know and we've been doing quite a bit on the diplomatic front but many people have said you know our Efforts were unsuccessful because we were unable to prevent or roll back China's uh, building up of its features in the Spratleys, particularly uh, in the period starting in, uh, I guess, 2013-14. So these are
0: like those sand islands,
3: right? <laughs> <Yeah>. um, just,
0: <laughs> just making sure I get the right image in my head.
3: <laughs> reclamation. reclaiming lands on coral reefs that was never there before. Yeah.
1: Just think in terms of, you know, multiple huge football fields, like uh, 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 quite a few of them, (laughs) like very extensively large sand islands.
0: Presuming with airstrips? (laughs)
1: Yes. (laughs) I mean, most of them.
0: So how are U.S. allies in the region perceiving this? You know, are they are they are they taking U.S. actions as a as a sign of oh wow the red line does uphold, or are they saying well I don't see that as the U.S. upholding a red line, or in fact I don't trust that the U.S. will uphold red lines in the future? Um, So you know, we in in a way we've talked about the Chinese perception, we've talked about the American perception, and and now I think you know it's it's worthwhile thinking about how how are America's allies viewing this? Yeah,
3: well, I mean that. Is a very interesting question, given the political moment and the foreign policy moment in which the U.S. finds itself. I think uh, with respect to countries in the region, one of the areas where we have seen continued U.S. Uh, stepped-up activity, attention, and uh, kind of diplomatic and security involvement is in the South China Sea with these... Freedom of navigation operations. You have a lot of military people attending various fora around the regions, talking about this, keeping the South China Sea on the radar screen of the international community, which I think is welcomed by people in the region, smaller countries in the region, other claimants who are still, uh, you know, engaged in this long slog with China, the negotiation of a code of conduct for the South China Sea, which you know, has been going on for 15 years or more now. Um, And I think, you know, that kind of engagement and activity is certainly welcome. Uh, You know, the other elephant in the room is sort of the U.S. um, attitude and policies toward um, economic activity in the region, which has, you know, a lot of countries in the region basically questioning you know continued US involvement is the US retreating from the region and the world and so the fact that we stay engaged and keep uh, up our presence in the South China Sea is i think helpful and reassuring to some extent now the one treaty ally that we have that's a claimant in the South China Sea of course is the Philippines and With the uh, election of Rodrigo Duterte several years ago, uh, really kind of flipped that uh, relationship, you know, 180 degrees on the issue of South China Sea, as he said he was going to, you know, try to take down the temperature of this issue between the Philippines and China. And most of the countries in the region want to try to balance a little bit between the US and China. And I think we see a lot of that now.
1: I actually want to uh, sort of follow up and ask Ms. I guess two related questions uh, with regard to sort of like US uh, policies and the possibility of, uh, or, or the degree to which the United States has alliance credibility uh, to its allies in sort of the Asia Pacific region. So, this the first one is um, to what extent do you think there is coordination? Uh, within the United States with regard to its diplomatic statecraft, uh, military actions or statecraft, as well as sort of economic involvement in uh, the Southeast Asian sort of region, uh, is there enough coordination? And the second is with regard to specifically uh, sort of economic statecraft in the sense that um, to what extent do you think the United States has economic leverage over China in sort of potentially deterring China from say, future uh, from aggressive or coercive actions in uh, the future?
3: Uh, So the issue of coordination of U.S. policy is a good question. It's always a problem. I think Uh, we have a sprawling bureaucracy. Different agencies have different, very kind of narrow purviews on questions it's very hard to get people at the top of the pyramid to focus on different issues because they have so much going on and there's very few of them as compared to some other systems. Uh, You know, you can't refer every single question to the president who has a lot obviously on his plate. And, you know, it's hard in our system, I think, to um, refer things to other people who don't have the same level of kind of leadership clout to enforce those um, kind of mandates or, or views or positions. So I think you know coordination is a problem. Uh, certainly, you know the preponderance of the of the defense uh, you know infrastructure in our foreign policy making. I think is something that needs to be uh, looked at very carefully as we go out into the future, because it the militarization of our foreign policy is something that I think most people would find is kind of undeniable over the last 20 years. And, um, you know, something that in the case of a question like the South China Sea, where there's conflicting maritime claims, is something that should be um, resolved through a diplomatic process, uh, negotiations. It's an economic issue, mostly, uh, actually, because it's mainly about resources, and the resources in the South Tennessee are hotly contested. Uh, Most of the countries in the region see it as an economic issue and not not as much a security and military issue, but the U.S. brings that lens to it uh, because of its need for access. So I think... You know, it's um, difficult to coordinate, certainly. As far as, um, you know, the role of the allies, um, you know, they, there's a lesser known, uh, you know, effort by the Obama administration, and you write a lot in your article about the Scarborough Shoal standoff of 2012. Uh, Following that, um, you know, there was a, a pretty, Big effort uh, to try to make sure that the Scarborough Shoal remained sort of an undeveloped feature, and that the status quo with respect to Scarborough Shoal uh, would not change. You know, as to sort of who uh, obviously China and Philippines both claim Scarborough Shoal, but that it would n- remain an unresolved, um, and that there would be no construction on that feature. And so far, that has has held up. So I think that's an example of something that's a pretty big success that nobody knows about, but it's the kind of thing that the U.S. can do um, with its diplomacy and be very influential.
0: Before we wrap up, Ms. Thornton, when we we say goodbye to a guest, we like to ask if they have any advice they would like to impart upon uh, either young scholars entering the discipline, studying these issues, or, you know, young folks finishing up college, heading off to the State Department or going into the policy community, what piece of advice would you have for them?
1: Well,
3: I would probably have way too much advice, but um, (laughs) uh, my, you know, operating in this current environment where it's very, you know, we're basically driven by narratives more than facts and you know we really need to come back to the good scholarship that's done by experts in the field and you know you see every day how busy uh, top level policymakers are they get swept away by these media narratives oftentimes that you know I don't want to talk about fake news but media narratives are about you know a quarter of a millimeter deep and very wide, and they have very sweeping influence. And it's very hard in the current climate to get us back to some kind of fact-based discussion. People seem to think that it's very boring to talk about facts, but <laughs> I really appreciate uh and other you know, scholars and experts delving into what's really happening and trying to get at the truth and then try to sort of bring that to a wider audience so that people can really have informed and realistic discussions and not kind of keep trafficking in these kind of false narratives that seems to be so prevalent now.
0: Well, I think that's a terrific point to end on. So thank you so much, Ms. Thornton, for joining us. And thank you also to Ketian for providing a fascinating article to help motivate our discussion today on the South China Sea. Off the Page is a production of International Security, a quarterly journal edited and sponsored by the Belfer Center at Harvard Kennedy School and published by the MIT Press. Our program is produced and edited by Morgan Kaplan, the executive editor of International Security. The associate producer is me, Rex Horner technical direction and post-production by ben craig thanks to our intern naomi silverstein for additional assistance and special thanks to Helen kaplan for composing our theme music upcoming episodes and additional material for off the page can be found online at belfercenter.org slash off the page all articles from the journal can be read at mitpressjournals.org is